you know, one of these days I'm going to get myself a good theme song and a good sponsor. And if you're out there, Pete's Coffee, hey, I'm wide open for sponsorship. Feel free. And if you want to send along a pound of coffee, great. Anyway, good morning and welcome to the third weekly podcast from the White Coat Underground. Just to remind you, the White Coat Underground is a weekly discussion of all things medical and perhaps some things non-medical. It is produced by me and me alone, and I am solely responsible for all of its content. And who am I? Uh, My name is Peter Lipson. I am an internist in the Midwestern United States, and I am also a blogger at scienceblogs.com slash denialism and at sciencebasedmedicine.com. Should you wish to engage in a post-podcast discussion, uh, such will be available, including uh, all links that may be discussed in this episode, at least as I remember them, at whitecoatunderground.com slash forum. Now, today I would fondly like to welcome our first guest to the show, which I've been promising to do since our inaugural podcast, but once again, I've failed you, dear listener. I actually had a terrific one set up for today, a physician with a rather libertarian political bent, and we were going to discuss the merits of healthcare as a right versus healthcare as an uh, earned privilege. However, circumstances have intervened. This uh, week, we lost a dear family member to a long illness, although not quite that long, and it was a bit of a shock. So... The guest will have to wait until circumstances permit, which leads us directly in today's topic, death. Now, in my particular cultural tradition, we have a uh, fairly set ritual for dealing with death, uh, although none of us really agrees on what death means. Uh, For me, as both a person and a physician, what death means is most important in what it means to those who are still living. Now, for me personally, in addition to losing a father-in-law, who I loved quite a bit, the experience is more poignant in that I have to explain death to my daughter for the first time. Now, I'm not one to be big on fairy tales and making it Both easier and more difficult for me is the fact that my particular cultural tradition also doesn't hold a particularly convenient fairy tale view of what happens after death. But returning to the living for a moment, death is very common in the hospital, as you might imagine, and it's something that, as a physician, I deal with on an almost daily basis. Now, as a son-in-law or cousin or relative of any sort, it is not something I deal with on a daily basis, and it's something that, as physicians, we have to recognize that our patients don't deal with on a daily basis. So while dealing with the death of a patient is an everyday experience for me, it is the most important day in the family's life, as often as not. And that goes not just for death, but for the diagnosis of a serious illness for any other serious medical event. So, for instance, when I tell a patient that they have diabetes or they have heart disease or they have cancer, these are things that, for me, are 
simple. They have disease X. We will approach it with treatment Y. And this is what I do every single day. For the patient, however, what they hear is you have cancer. Everything after that is noise. And it is a noise that they are not hearing over the roar that they are hearing in their own head. The roar of confusion, the roar of what did he just say, the roar of what am I going to do now? Obviously, every patient is different, but when telling someone bad news or even moderately difficult news, it's important for a physician to recognize that they're going to need to hear it a lot more than a single time. And you're going to have to make them aware of what they need to do, and you're going to have to make it simple. More details can come later once they've had a chance to actually hear what you've said. I can't tell you the number of times I've had someone come to me as a patient, giving me their medical history, and I look on the computer from the hospital and see what other things have gone on before, and I see that they have cancer or sometimes that they've had cancer and it's been cured. The patient never mentioned this to me. And when I ask them about it, they say, oh no, cancer, no. And as a young physician, we are often tempted to blame the oncologist and think, what are these oncologists telling people? Are they telling them they don't have cancer? Are they just not telling them the truth? But as you gain more experience, you realize the oncologists are doing their job. The oncologists are telling them everything the patients just haven't been ready to hear about it yet. They haven't been able to integrate that into their view of themselves. This is especially troubling when somebody has a very serious, life-threatening illness, something from which they may die very quickly. There are practical concerns. There are practical things that must be done to prepare for death and for the family to prepare. And if the patient hasn't heard, you are dying and soon... This is going to have wide-ranging consequences that the survivors are going to have to deal with. Now, I've talked to you in earlier podcasts about medical advocacy, medical advocacy, and the fact that someone who's ill needs someone who can listen and speak for them. And I've talked a lot about them, the need to speak for someone who's ill, to inform the medical care team when things are going wrong or when things need to be fixed. But I've left out a bit the listening for the sick person. This is the second arm to medical advocacy. And yes, it's very important to be able to say for someone in the hospital, to the nurse, the patient's uncomfortable, can they have something for pain? The patient is soiled, can you help change them? Uh, the patient would not like to be on a ventilator could you please not do that to them? But the listening, the listening is maybe the more difficult responsibility. And the reason I say that it's more difficult is that in addition to being an extra set of ears for your loved one, you are also being forced to assimilate the same information that they are. As the patient's advocate and presumably the patient's loved one, you are also hearing for the first time, your father has cancer, your mother has diabetes, your sister has heart disease. And while the patient may be hearing the roar in their brain, the confusion, the 
noise that prevents them from assimilating this information. As the advocate, you have that same problem, but you can't. You are at least one step away from the problem. You aren't actually the patient, and you have a responsibility to retain more information, to have questions formulated, and to help remind your loved one what has been said. That's not an easy task. And when you pick a medical advocate for yourself, you need to sit down and have a talk with them, not only to tell them what your wishes are in the case of something extreme, like not being able to speak for yourself in a hospital, but also in these smaller everyday situations when you're simply going to a doctor and need an extra set of ears. Because before someone accepts that responsibility, they need to know what a large responsibility that is that they're agreeing to. But let's put advocacy aside for a minute and get back to death, because death is something we don't talk about nearly enough. Most people in North America, at least, don't die at home. They die in a hospital. And before you reach a situation where you cannot make decisions for yourself, you need to know a little bit about what death in a hospital is. Now, for some of us who've thought it through and who've been exposed to it, it's slightly easier. For example, I know that if my life is essentially over, if I am dependent on a ventilator and other external machines keeping my physical body going without other apparent purpose, me, this kind of thing is an everyday situation. Usually, but not this week. This week, it happened to a family member. And I have to say, the hospital staff could not have been better. It, they made me proud to work with them on a daily basis. But let me share some of the details of what occurred so that maybe you can be prepared for seeing such a thing in the future. Perhaps there's a bit of a voyeuristic overlay to this for someone listening about someone else's death, but I really do think it's beneficial because we just don't talk about it enough. I could tell you stories all day about deaths that I've witnessed, but to tell you about one that I'm emotionally attached to, I think would have more weight, especially given the fact that people don't seem to believe that doctors have hearts sometimes or that doctors understand these things. I can assure you, most of us do. My father-in-law was in the hospital for about three weeks. He's a man who's been chronically ill, but very intellectually active. He was dealt an unfortunate hand when it came to genetics and had a number of vascular problems. But most recently, he became nearly entirely paralyzed by a couple of discs impinging on a cervical spinal cord. We got him to the hospital, and we set up surgery for him, but other medical complications got in the way. But surgery was eventually done, and rather successfully. However, his other medical problems intervened. A couple of nights ago, my wife was visiting him and told me that he just didn't look good, that he was more delirious, and that he just seemed to have given up in some ways or at least recognized that he wasn't going to do well. 
in a fortuitous occurrence, the sitter who we usually had with him at night couldn't come, and so his wife was with him that night. Now, we had never specified with him whether or not we would want CPR performed on him. We had not given a so-called no CPR or DNR order. So when my mother-in-law found that he seemed a little too peaceful and the nurse came in and found him without a pulse, a code was called immediately. A number of my residents happened to be on the floor below, rushed to his bedside, and began the ritual process of attempting to resuscitate him. This involved, of course, the putting of a tube down his throat for breathing, the pounding on the chest, the instilling of medications. It didn't involve any electric shocks because of his particular heart rhythm. They continued this for quite a while, uh, nearly 40 minutes. In this kind of situation, the physicians may have known quite well that he wasn't coming back, but they also made a judgment that his wife was not ready to see them, quote, give up, unquote. And so they continued the code perhaps a little longer than was necessary. And when I say was necessary, I mean that you continue the code until you realize that it is futile. And they perhaps went a little bit longer, which in this case they did less for medical reasons than for the family, a judgment that I think was correct. When we arrived at the hospital in the middle of the night, they had called the code, meaning they had stopped their efforts and declared him dead. We rushed to my mother-in-law's side, and we stayed with her, and I went down to the room to see what was going on. He looked like he had been through a code. He had the various tubes and lines sticking out of him, and it's not the most peaceful appearance. The nursing staff, though, was fantastic and made him look much better before the family came in. In addition, since we didn't wish to have an autopsy, we were allowed to remove all of the tubes and any other appliances that were on him to make him look even more comfortable. Now, of course, that doesn't mean he was comfortable or uncomfortable or anything, but it did a lot for us as a family. We were all able to go in and say goodbye to someone who looked at peace and this is unfortunately not always the case. Which leads me back to planning for the end of your own life. Advanced directives are legal documents that don't always require the assistance of a lawyer, although it's a darn good idea. And they set out what you would like done near the end of your life when you can't speak for yourself. They allow you to designate someone to be a decision maker for you and they give a general outline of what things you would and would not like to have done to you. This is the planning that determines how you wish to be treated when you can't speak for yourself. And I will uh, try to post a link for you for some advanced directive documents. After you're gone, however, whatever is done then isn't for you but for the living. Now, of course, that's my opinion, and I'm sure there are probably lots of opinions and lots of religious traditions that disagree with that, but it really shouldn't come as any surprise that the rituals that occur after death are for those who are left behind. As an example, when it's my time, which I hope is in the very, very distant future, I would love to be cremated and have my ashes scattered on Lake Michigan. This would 
be horrible to my wife should I predecease her. Therefore, I will not put up a fight. She knows what I want, and as far as I'm concerned, she can do whatever she wants to me when I'm gone, because the rituals of death are for the living. And so, too, the rituals of the pre-death period, the cardiac arrest, the filling out of the advanced directive, these are for the living. And they have to be done when you're living, when you are yourself, when you are of sound mind. And these aren't irrevocable statements that you make. These are things you can change any day, but it's a discussion you have to have. Speaking of which, it's time for me to say have a pleasant week and a happy new year because I am off to meet with a rabbi and to prepare for the shiva or the seven-day mourning period, which will help keep my mother-in-law going and help keep her company in this very difficult time for her. It is a ritual of which I heartily approve. Next time, I'm really going to try to get you a guest.